0: In 2004, Tom Brokaw, who was the former anchor of the NBC Nightly News, he released a book. And the book was entitled The Greatest Generation. Did any, did any of you read this book? Uh, if, you, if you didn't, you, you probably you probably should. The book chronicles the generation that lived through the destruction of this country through the Great Depression only to find themselves engulfed in World War II a decade later. That war that America was drugged into, I mean, we were desperately trying to stay out of it, thinking that we're isolationists. And all that was going on in Europe with Hitler, we were ignoring. And then then on the other side of the world, with Japan kind of moving into Asia, we were, were, again, just trying to stay out of it. We, we, We were drugged into it. And that war that was fought on those two fronts, against the Japanese and against, against the Germans uh, was, was really a, a difficult, difficult, difficult time for this country. According to Brokaw, the thing that made this generation the greatest generation was their willingness to sacrifice self for the good of others. Liberating the world from an evil dictator and regime that had enslaved and literally killed millions of people. Their lives had been hard for 10 years and then the war broke out and their lives became even harder and they didn't, they didn't even skip a beat. They gave, they built, they sweat. They offered the ultimate sacrifice of their own personal lives. But today, that great generation has been, has been replaced with the me generation. Seriously, I mean, this is, this is the new phrase running through our country. In President John F. Kennedy's 1961 inaugural address, which was literally just 60 years ago, he made the probing statement, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That idea has been shuttered and replaced with, what's in it for me? I'm hearing this more and more and more. I'm, t- I'm, j- I'm telling you, everywhere I'm turning, it seems like I hear it. Me, I, I, me, 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 I, 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 me. The only thing that matters is me and how it can benefit me. And I, and I want to make sh- sure you hear me this morning. I want to I make sure I'm being really clear. When I say generation, I'm not pointing at a specific age group, you know, like 20s or 30s or teenagers or 50-year-olds. No, 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 no. When I say generation, I mean the age of, the day of. Back in the day of the greatest generation, that, that generation, that it spoke, uh, it spoke of all people, all ages. Everyone was in it for other people. It didn't matter if you were 10 years old or if you were 90 years old. My, my, dad, was, my dad was five years old when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And he was, he was, he was moving through it and suffering just like everybody else. Back in, in that day, everybody was giving. And it's that way today as well. I hear people of all ages, all stages, focusing in on themselves. Me, what are you doing for me? And, 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 and I want you to know that it is completely opposite of how God intends that we would live our lives. The call of God is not to selfishness, it's to selflessness. Matthew chapter 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus spoke in Matthew 10.39 about the secret of truly finding your life. He said, whoever finds his life is the one who loses it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will find it. And these aren't hollow words from Jesus. I mean, this isn't something that he just threw out, like he was... You know, just kind of trying to come up with something to say. This wasn't some pithy statement that came from the from the mouth of some spiritual guru. No, I mean these these were words that Jesus believed, and he actually lived them out. And because of that, the apostle Paul lifted him up as a supreme example of how we all ought to be living our lives. In Philippians chapter two, he, he was exhorting us by saying, Your attitude. The way that you approach life should be the same as of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and he humbled himself and uh, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus do it? Because he was all about me, all about himself. No, 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 no. Jesus did it because Jesus was love. He loved me. He loved me enough to sacrifice himself. The call of God is sacrifice selflessness. My life truly takes on the character and quality that God finds pleasing when I choose that I'm going to lose myself and serve others. It is not about me. It's not about me. Would you, would you say that with me? It's not about me. Come on, say it again. It's not. It's not. And here's the truth, friends. The focus of your life can clearly be seen in the way you pray. When it's all about me, then my prayers turned into, Lord, give me this, give me that. It's my long list of stuff that I want that will make me happy versus when I'm losing myself and I'm becoming selfless and I'm focusing where God wants me to focus, on others, on his kingdom, and then it becomes all about you. Lord, show me how I can serve them. Show me how I can help them. Show me how I can encourage them. Show me what's best for them. When you pray, where do your prayers land? Is it all about you, or is it more about him? And him meaning others, or God? The Lord, his will, his heart, his desire. For Paul, his prayer was always consistent. For the, the apostle, he was always consistent in the way that he prayed. Many times in his New Testament letters, we, we find the apostle stopping, pausing to lift up prayer, and those prayers were consistently for other people, for their growth, for their service, for their salvation, for their, for their maturity, for their, for their involvement in the ministry of God's kingdom. And, and, and it's true that Paul did ask others to pray for him, but typically the prayers for him were so that he would better be able to serve other people. Lord, give me the strength to stand up, the courage to speak out, and the continuing desire to do your work and to focus on your work only. Paul followed the example of Jesus. He literally laid his life down. He took on the nature of a servant. And this morning we're continuing our study in Ephesians, and we're turning our focus to Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21. And for the second time, in the short little letter, six-chapter letter, Paul is praying. He first prayed in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And that prayer was that the Ephesians would know some things, that they would be stamped into their heads, into their minds, that they would know God, that they would know their hope, their eternity, that they would know that they are going to heaven, that their names are written there, and that they would know their power, the power that lives inside of them, that resurrection power. And now we move to the end of Chapter 3, and Paul is praying again. He's praying that the Ephesians Ephesians would get busy and live out. Prayer one was know some things. Number two prayer was get busy and do some things. As we get ready to delve into this prayer, there are several things I want to encourage you to focus on. And the first one is this, knowing is really not enough. Knowing God is not enough having some kind of knowledge of who God is and what He is and what He's about, that, that, that has never been the goal. Belief that God is real, belief that, that God exists, belief, belief in God does not constitute saving faith. Chapter 2 of James, verse 19, he, he says, you believe that there's a God, so what? Big deal, good, good for you. And even the demons believe that, of course the demons would believe that there's a God. They've seen him. They've been in his presence. They were a one-time angels. They're fallen angels. They know all about God. So is having some kind of belief or knowledge that God is real enough? No, it's not. God's call is to something much more than a statement of belief. The call of God has always been to a lifestyle. When you accept Jesus as Savior, he becomes your Lord. He moves into your life to direct your life. God is calling you to put your faith, your belief, into action, to live your daily faith out. And this is where Paul turns his thoughts. Here in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, the apostle opens up his prayer journal, and he allows us to get a glimpse at the things that he was focusing on for the Ephesians. Three things I want you to see. And the first one is this, the focus. The focus of Paul's prayer, the reason for this reason, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Everybody who's a follower of Jesus, everybody who's in the kingdom, the family of God, who we, we all flow under that name. Paul is praying for us for this reason. And as Paul bowed down, the focus is on the things that he's already been saying, and the things that he's delivered to us are, are significant. They're important. Chapter 1 verses three down through verse 14, he's talking about how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Ephesians chapter two, verse one, he says, you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians three, four, he says, but because of his great love, because of God's great love for us, the God who is rich in mercy has made us alive with Christ. He's poured out his grace upon us. In chapter three, verse six, he's talking about the mystery, his been revealed. And that's, that mystery is that all people would be in the family of God. God didn't come for one group, for one societal group, for, 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 for one group of people. He didn't come for the Jews. Jesus came for all people. God wants all people saved. That mystery has been revealed. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, he himself is our peace. He came and he destroyed, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between people so that we can be built up to be the people of God. The first three chapters of Ephesians have simply and succinctly spelled out the heart of God. That God loves all people and wants them all included in his family. That has been the bulk of Paul's writing to the Ephesians. This is the heart of God. God actually wants it to happen. So God stepped out and provided the way for it to happen. Jesus, and Paul, Paul's lifted, lifting it up. He's bowed to pray, asking God to unleash it. Unleash it, Lord. Allow it to happen. Allow it to happen in this city, in, in, in Ephesus. And he would say the same thing right here, in this city, in this church, in this place, in this community. Paul was praying that the members of God's family would join him in prayer for this great cause and then would join his ranks in getting the word out to every needy person in the world that the world would hear the message of salvation and would 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 turn would turn in their relationship to God. But here's the deal friends, God's will for your life is subject to choice. And that's your choice. You have a choice. You're a free will being. And God will not drag you to a place that you do not want to go. And so God is calling you to accept his grace, accept his love, accept his mercy through Jesus. And uh, he's given you the ability to say no and to say yes. So Paul's interceding for the Ephesian Christians to be wrapped up in living out the heart of God, to help bring people Into this relationship, which leads to the second point of Paul's prayer, and that's intercession. Again, Paul has taken a moment to speak about the heart of God, and now he's interceding. He's he's asking God to deliver attitudes and actions. He wants the Ephesians to turn to these specific things, to take them on. He's interceding for them. Now when it comes to prayer, your 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 prayer life really should consist of, of many different parts or facets. Prayer, prayer is like a beautifully cut diamond. It has many, many different faces on it. It's all the same diamond, but many different faces, and prayer is that way. It, there are many different types of prayer that we all ought to be uttering. And 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 it, it looks it looks really something like this. When when we when we pray, we should be including these different attributes into our prayer time with God praise always always praise in fact you should begin with praise and end with praise confession this is where you're speaking about the sin in your life and you're asking God to forgive that then for, then you move from there into intercession this is where you're lifting up other people and praying for their needs it's not until you kind of get way down the list that you get into petition this is where you're praying for yourself for your needs for the issues in, in your life, from their thanksgiving, pausing to say to God, thank you. Thank you that you answered my prayers, that you heard them, and letting him know that you recognize that he has gifted you with that blessing. There, there, there should always be a time where you're taking out God's word and reading it in your prayer time. The book of Psalms is a great place to read, and, and and, and read. Read to yourself. Read, read to God. Take some time to sing some of the songs that we sing here on Sunday morning, some of your other favorites that bring glory to God. And, and you, you, you say, you say but I, I, I'm not really good at singing. That's okay. The psalm tells us to make a joyful noise. So you just sing loud and you sing proud. And get in your prayer closet and let it, let it go. And then meditate. This is, this is where you take things that you've learned, things that you're knowing, th- words that you're memorizing out of God's Word, and you're, you're, you're chewing on them asking God to to help you to understand, asking God to encourage you in in your walk so you can do the things that he wants you to do, listening then, taking time to be quiet and focusing on all that God is wanting to encourage you with. And then again, ending with praise. Your your, your prayer life should really include all of these things. Every time you sit down to pray, this should be what it looks like. The problem with prayer is twofold. First, for a whole lot of us, our prayers center on petition. We say, thank you, God, that you've given us this day now. And then the list comes out and we start. We start in the petition for ourselves. All the things that are wrong and all the things that we want, and we just lay it out in front of him. And it's self, me, I, me, I, me, I, give me this, give me that. The point is that it's easy for our prayer lives to to focus in right here. It's easy for our prayer lives to germinate to this point right here and to focus down. And that happens because of the second problem in our prayer lives, and that's we really haven't died. Anybody would come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself, take up his cross. When, when a person has taken up the cross, they're, they're literally, it's, they're, I, it's, it's, a, it's a statement of I've died. It's, it's my death. It's my instrument of death. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. When you die to Christ, his will, his desire becomes your will, your desire. And when that happens, your personal petition changes. It moves. I remember being a teenager, you know, right here, petition. Lord, the the guy that lived next door to us in Brea, California, he was like a 23-year-old and he had a Pantera. It was a, you know, you know what Panteras are? A racing car. Lord, I could really use a Pantera like John. My petitions moved as as I've grown to understand this. I've changed. My petition isn't so much about about material things anymore. Is It is the Lord, help me be more effective in leading my life the way that you would want it to be, and helping others to know, and leading this person to Jesus and being an example. When I die to myself, suddenly my personal petition is completely focused in the will of God. And that was the Apostle Paul. His prayers were centered in helping lead other people to the will, heart, and purpose of God. His prayers for himself were that he would be able to lead these people well. I mean, even when Paul's in prison, his prayers aren't, Lord, get me out of here. His prayers are, help me to be effective right where you've put me. Use me, Lord, to affect the people around me. And that is what we're reading about here in Ephesians chapter 3. This is Paul interceding for the Ephesians. He's praying that their lives will change. Change in the way that God would find pleasure with. And he he lists three things. I want you, I want you to see them. Paul focuses on three things. First, he says may you be strengthened with power. And what Paul is praying here or is the moral fortitude to stand for God. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, it's no secret God calls us to stand up. God's called you, he's called me to stand up in the world and make a difference, to speak the truth, to call people to the truth. In fact, the truth is that we will be held accountable to how we've done our job in standing up and speaking the truth. Way back in the Old Testament, there was a prophet by the name of Ezekiel. He's one of the major prophets. You can find him after the book of Psalms. And, and, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the prophet, to go and speak to the people of God and warn them of the ways they were on. And then God had these words to say. In Ezekiel chapter, chapter 3, verse 17, he said, Son of man, Ezekiel, I made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or you do not speak to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Now think about that. Ezekiel, I'm putting you here for a reason. And the reason is to stand up and speak. And I know your message isn't going to be a happy one, but you still need to stand up and speak. And if you refuse to do that, I will hold you accountable for all that comes. Now, if you read on into verse 19, God says, if you go and speak, if that person doesn't doesn't choose to listen, then it's all on his head, and he's going to die. Either way, he's going to die if he doesn't turn. But if you don't do the job I put in front of you, you're in trouble, Ezekiel. And the message, friends, is really simple. We cannot just sit back and watch the world go to hell. You you just can't take a laissez fair attitude in life. You can't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, too bad for them. I guess someday they're going to find out. We're here to be light and to be salt. And that means we need to speak up about what's right. We need to speak up about what's wrong. We need to actively talk about sin, the sinfulness of mankind, and the solution, which is Jesus and following his way. And you know, like I do, that's no easy task. Especially in a world that is completely flipped out and run off the rails And I don't know a better way to describe our world than than in those terms. The the world is rewriting the moral code all around us. And it's demanding that Christians acquiesce. And if you don't, well, there's something wrong with you. You're shunned, harassed, even harmed. And so, so Christians all over are doing what they've been asked to do, which is close up their mouths, zip it up, put up their hands, and crawl under a rock. And as we do that, friends, our world is running deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. Christians are threatened to step back, and when we do, problems come. Problems come. And none of us want problems. And so we've stepped back. And then we've, we've misinterpreted the truth. The truth is that God asked us to respond in love. And so we've, we've determined that this means that we open our arms in love and just accept whatever is around us. So we've broadened our perspective. And we've pronounced all these things as normal and right and good. And friends, they're not. They're not okay. And here's the bigger picture. It's not loving to keep your mouth shut. In fact, the most unloving thing that we could ever do would not be to tell the truth. In in and in a world that's telling us to, to just accept all the changes in sexual morality, in a world that's telling us that it's okay to kill babies, in, 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 a, in a world that it's okay to that, that says, you know, if you're wrong, then you don't need to turn the other cheek. What you just need to do is pick up a brick and do damage. In a world that's flipping all this on its head, when Christians just step back and say, you know what? Not going to get involved, not going to do anything about that. that. There's nothing loving about that at all. Sitting back and watching the whole thing happen puts us in jeopardy with God, just like he told the prophet Ezekiel, speak up, Ezekiel, or you will be held accountable. The only option we have as Christians is to speak the truth. And you know, like I do, standing up, taking a stand demands strength. Demands some intestinal fortitude. It Demands some courage, some guts. And that's what Paul is praying about right here. He's asking God to strengthen us with power in order that we might stand up to say what needs to be said, to always speak the truth. And here's the promise. God has given us an infinite resource to enable us to stand, and that resource is the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 1, Paul prayed that the Ephesians would, would know the power that is at work in their lives. The, the, the word power here that Paul uses is dunamis. It's, it's, it's where we get our our English word dynamite. Paul says in chapter one that the power, the dynamite that brought Jesus from the grave is alive in you today, and he's alive in you through the Holy Spirit. And Paul is now praying in chapter three that you will allow that power to strengthen you to stand up for God. The, 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 the word power is oftentimes associated with, with the Holy Spirit. This was the promise of Ezekiel. In, in Ezekiel chapter 36 is verses 26 through 27. God is saying, The day is going to come, and I'm going to take your hardest stone, and I'm going to remove it. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you my heart. And then I'm going to take my spirit, God says, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. And my spirit will cause you, will move you, will help you, will give you strength and power to do the things that I'm asking you to do. And Paul leans into this promise several times in his writings when he speaks about having power to be the people of God. I've written several verses in your outlines here, and I want to encourage you to take them this way this week, and read Philippians 2, Romans 8, Ephesians 6. And make sure you add in the words of Peter, the apostle Peter, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God has called you to stand up, to speak the truth, and while the task may seem daunting, You don't ever need to fear because he has given you the power to do the task that he's asked you to do. So how should you respond? In faith. In faith. You can't actually see the power. You can't actually see the Holy Spirit. But the power's there and the Spirit's there. You accept it by faith. God has already given you the strength to stand. The world needs you to be out there standing up and speaking the truth, and you already have the ability to do it. It's already inside of you. You just need to trust that the promise is true. So when does this indwelling take place? When do you receive the Holy Spirit? The minute you come to Christ. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, Peter was preaching. The people interrupted him. They were cut. They believed that everything that he was saying was true, that they had killed Jesus and that they were, they were in big trouble. They were dead. They were going, going to hell. They said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn to God. Turn from your way and turn to God. Repent. Be baptized. Die. Die to yourself. Let your sins be washed away. And that's, that, that's exactly what he said. Repent, be baptized in order that your sins may be forgiven and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that first thing that happens to you when you come to Christ. Your sins are forgiven. You're, you're, you're imbued with the Holy Spirit in your life. Your, your job is to accept it, to accept the truth. Have faith that is true. I have strength. I have power. I have the ability to stand up. Why? Because I'm so strong and powerful? No, I have strong, I have strength and power because the Holy Spirit is in me. Paul intercedes for the Ephesians. He prays that they will realize God's strength, God's power, and stand up for him and proclaim the truth. And the second thing that he prays is that they could be rooted and established in love. That they would have the determination to allow their lives to be led by love. I pray that you, Ephesians 3.17, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, to know it, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I love, I love, I love the imagery here: rooted and established in love. A bunch of you here are gardeners. And those words make total sense to you. When we're going to garden, the first thing we do is we take some seeds and we, we put them into the ground. Sometimes we'll even put them into some water and maybe some other objects in there to help. We, what's going to happen is the, the seed is going is to germinate and, 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 and roots are, are going to appear. And those roots appear so that this, this, this plant, this bush, can be established, rooted, and then established. So it's rooted so it can grow to become what it is intended to, to be, to grow to maturity and produce the kind of fruit that it's supposed to produce. And God wants to work that same way in you. His heart is that you grow to be people of love, rooted and established. And so he, he takes steps with you. Four things I want you to know really quickly about love first. Love is, is, the, is the very foundational quality of God. God is a lot of things. We, we, learn, we learn them from Scripture. He's, he's the creator. He's, he's the judge, the one to whom we will give account. He, he is the righteous one. He is the one that is always doing what's right. He has never been wrong. He's, he's truth. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, which is an amazing thought to me. Not only he's here, he's in Pickerington, and not only is he here in Pickerington, he's also, he's also in Hong Kong, and he's also at the moon. He's kind of every place. He's holding it all together. He's omnipresent, and he's omniscient. He knows everything, and he's he's immutable. He never changes. God never gets to a point where he says, oh, you know, I want to go a different direction. Change my mind. He's faithful. He's good. He's merciful. He's gracious. But the quality that defines him, the quality is love. God is love. 1 John 4.16. One of my English major friends once told me that this phrase is a predicate nominative. Predicate nominative is a word or group of words that follow a linking verb and rename the subject. And that means the subject and these, and these words in the predicate are really interchangeable. So what is God? He's love. Well, what is love? Well, love is God. They, they, they establish the truth about each other. Of all the qualities that stand out about God, love is the foundational quality of his person. We need to stamp that into our heads and move to the second point of focus in this subject of love, and that is that this defining quality of love needs, of God needs to be in our lives as well. It needs to be the defining quality of our relationship with Jesus and others. Now, that just makes sense. If God is loved, then the people who follow God should be like God. They should be loving, and God enables it to happen when the Holy Spirit enters our life at the point of salvation. He roots us, and He establishes us to be loving. We received His love, and now the encouragement is that we would give that love, that we would follow the example of Jesus. The New Testament is filled with, with commands that tell us we're to love, just like God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore is God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another. That means put up with each other. Bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You will never be these things until you get this foundation quality. Forgive, bear, (sighs) but once I get love, it can happen. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Just as God has given us the power to stand truthfully and morally for right and for wrong, He's also given us His love. It comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit is living inside of you. If you are in Christ, you already have the full measure, the full capacity of the love of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to you in pieces over your lifetime as you mature and grow. No, the, the Christian life is not about getting more. The Christian life is only about releasing what's already there. Do you hear that? When I come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes on me, and I receive the full measure of the love of Christ. It's in me. Now my job is to understand that, which leads to the third focus of love. Paul prayed that we would be able to actually comprehend the magnitude of God's love. I pray you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ. Now, I, I love these words here. It's, it's an interesting phrase, power to grasp. Paul is saying that our minds, he's praying that our minds might be able to truly comprehend the vast expanse of the love of God. When I was a kid, there were there were times I just really totally misunderstood my parents. Did that ever happen to you? There were times that I just really thought my parents were kind of cold, kind of stoic, kind of a bit uncaring, maybe unsympathetic. There were, there were moments I wondered, do, do they even really love me? Do they even really care for me? And then I grew up a bit, and then I matured a bit. And I started seeing things from a completely different angle. And then I got married, and Brenda and I had kids. And it all began to hit me how much my parents really did love me. Love isn't always this soft, gooey feeling. Love is a commitment to give yourself for the benefit of another person. And when I look back on my life, that's exactly what my mom and my dad did. It wasn't always easy, but it was always there. They were for me. They put me first. They sacrificed their own well-being. They protected stood in front, stood behind, stood on the side of me, swords drawn, ready to go to war if I needed that. It's an amazing thing when you get to a point where you suddenly start thinking straight and seeing straight. And Paul's praying that for the Ephesian Christians, that they would actually grow up in their understanding of God's love to see the expanse and the vast way that God has poured love into our lives. And it leads to a forethought I want to put in front of you about love. Christ's love should be the driving force in your life. It should literally affect your daily life. When you truly begin to grasp the vast expanse of God's love for you, where he has gone, what, what he has done for you, then that should be driving you, moving you, causing you, compelling you to want to give to other people like that, to want to give to love like that. You'll literally be changed. You, you, you will want to give that same love to other people. Now Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was that they might all grow to be the people that God intended them to be, that they would stand strong. They would have the moral fortitude to tell the truth. That They would be people of love who know God's love and display that love to other people. And third, the third thing he interceded for the Ephesians was concerning their character. He says in 319, may you be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. May the character of Jesus flow through your life. Now, the word I want you to focus in on here is fullness. And I've already alluded to it. But this fullness is, is a word that Paul uses in several places. One of those places is, is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where, where Paul says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwelt in bodily form. When you were looking at Jesus, you were looking at God. Now that makes sense because Jesus was God. Remember in John chapter 14, disciples are asking us, you know, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because in Christ, the fullness of the deity, everything that he is, everything that he was, dwelt in Christ in bodily form. And then Paul goes on to say, and you have been given fullness in Christ. So God has laid it in Jesus, who is God, and now through the Holy Spirit, it's been laid into you. You're not lacking any of the character qualities that Jesus had in his life. Love being one of them. You're filled, full of all them. Joy and peace and kindness, grace and mercy and compassion. All of those things that dwelt in Christ dwell in you, the fullness of of them, And Paul's prayer was that you would come to recognize it. Recognize the character that has been poured into your life and allow it to change you to live it out. And it leads to the closing part of Paul's prayer, the doxology. Giving God praise for all he has done and all he will do. You remember when I was putting up that chart of prayer that we begin with praise and we end with praise? This is what Paul's doing right here. He's ending with praise, his prayer. And if you want a passage of Scripture to memorize, this is a great place to start. Paul says, now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. When you take the Word and the will of God, and you say, I want to do that, and you, this becomes your prayer to intercede for others, to petition for yourself, Father, may I be, these, be one of these people that is about your will and about your Word and about your truth, and I, 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 I want to stand up, and I, and I want to be loving, and I want to be filled with fullness. And when you start praying these prayers, asking here's, here's to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine, God's able to take that prayer and multiply it to places that you never thought you could ever be able to go. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. I want to make sure you notice two things here really quickly. All the work has been performed by the mighty hand of God. Now to him, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all I could ask, imagine with his power that is at work within me. I become a tool. I become an implement to the word and to the will of God. When, when, When I submit myself to him, when I die to myself, this is how you find your life. You lose it so it can become meaningful and purposeful. And the second thing I want you to notice it, is that, it, is that when all this happens inside of you, it should move you to just want to sing praise to God, to shout out to him because of all that he's accomplished. Back in the mid-90s, I found myself in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Promise Keepers was getting ready to happen. Any, any of you guys been to a Promise Keepers event? Yeah? The music pastor at our church, Stan Indicott, was in charge of a, putting together a gospel choir. And he called me up and he said, I need you to be involved in this thing. And there, were about, there were about 30 of us. We ended up recording an album. It was like a really cool thing, but we were the backup choir for the Maranatha Praise Band that was playing. So I got to stand on the stage with these 30 brothers from all from all... Tribes from all tongues, black, Hispanic, Asian, we were, we were all together. And we were standing on risers that was built on a big, big riser. And some of these guys were big guys, you know what I mean? And they had these big old voices. And they started, they started as we were singing, and they're booming. I mean, I was like being catapulted into the air as this is going on is a great moment as we're singing these praise songs to God. And I'm looking out at this crowd. I mean, the Coliseum holds 100,000 people, and, and it, the place was packed. And I'm listening to this voice cry out of these people that are giving praise to God. And finally, the, the worship leader stops. He goes, you know what? There's been all kinds of amazing things that have happened in this place. This, this, this stadium was built for the 1932 Olympics. And the 1984 Olympics was held there too. John F. Kennedy had given a speech in that very place, all the athletic events that had taken place there, all the concerts that had taken place. And the guy was saying, can you imagine the cheers and the applauding that have gone up from this place in honor and recognition of whoever it was on the stage that was performing that night? And he said, wouldn't it be great if the greatest, if the greatest prayer and the greatest praise of all time that came out of this place happened right now from people who love God and the place, I mean, the place went on its feet and the the yelp of joy and of praise to God that came out was, I mean, it was like stunning because it was like a rush of wind that just went. And friends, that's what God wants out of us, a life. This stops, to give him joy and honor. And that it would come from the people who know him and love him. May his love be rooted and established in you. May you be people who are steadfast to stand up and speak the truth in love. May you realize that the fullness of all that God is, has been put upon you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then may you understand it all comes from God, and so to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we would ask or imagine according to his power that is a work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, bow your heads. It's a lot to take in, friends. But the truth is, it's all present. God's heart for you, to help you be the people that he wants you to be, to enable you to do the things that he would call you to do. as his child, as his follower, it is already in you. So, Lord, I pray this morning you'll help us to see it, to believe it, to trust, to have the faith to know that it is so and have the faith to step out in obedience that your name might be lifted up and that it might be praised. And, Father, in a day and an age when praise is going to all the wrong places, I pray that you'll help us as your people to stand up and to direct it in the place, in the direction, to the person that it ought to go to. And that's our Lord and our Savior. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for setting us free from the law of sin and death. Thank you that you've desired to have us included into your family. And Father, thank you that you've given us every tool that we need to not only be a part of your family, but to make a difference in your family and for your family and to encourage other people to join in with your family. We're grateful, Lord. Grateful. Grateful. And we lift it in the name of Jesus. Amen.